0: let's grab our Bibles um, and open them to James chapter 4. If you need a Bible, the ushers are coming down front and just kind of lift up your hand and they will give you a, a copy. And let me just give you some instructions on this. If you don't own a Bible, um, this is our gift to you. If you have one and you just neglect to bring it around with you, this is your confrontation. So bring it with you. All right. Um, these are for you to, uh, to have if you don't have one. So lift your hand up and the ushers will make sure you get a copy. James chapter 4. The book of James has been fun, hasn't it? It has been really fun. Uh, some say it's the earliest writing we have, and uh, James is trying to be an encouragement and a confrontation to the, to the church. Uh, he saw something in the church that's bothered him. It's nothing new. It's, it hasn't gone away in the 2,000 years uh, uh, since his writing. But it's this idea of practical atheism, you know, it's different than intellectual atheism. There are people who say, I don't believe there's a God. I don't, I don't really believe that statement, by the way. I don't think very many people actually mean that statement. All you need is a foxhole experience, a 9-11, a, a hurricane or an earthquake, and everybody's praying, right? So some, somehow that's not as, as firm as people say it. But this other practical atheism has more legitimacy to it. See, practical atheism is people who say, I believe in a God, but they don't live like it, right? Right? Is that, is that one of the most, probably the number one complaint the world has towards Christians and, and Christianity is this idea of hypocrisy. That somehow you say, people, you say you believe in a God, a God of love, a God of mercy, a God of help, a God of obedience. You say that, but I watch your life. Have you not heard that before? Right? And it's, it's a fair charge. It's, it's there. And the accusation is that you guys talk a game you don't play. It's so easy to say you believe in God. And James sees that issue in the church and he writes this book to confront this idea of saying things that you don't do. Just this idea of disobedience. There's themes that we've gone through so far as James confronts it. He confronts this idea of Christians, people who've been changed by the gospel, are people who see trials no longer as inconveniences, but they see them as joy. Not not weird, I'm out of my mind, happy about problems, but because of a God-type perspective, I know that God is shaping me and forming me into the image of Christ, making me complete and mature, not lacking anything, and he uses, and only he could do this, he uses trials to do it, right? How many of you have ever had a trial? You don't act like you had a trial. How many of you had a trial? Yeah, yeah. We've all had a trial. Guess what God's doing? No surprise. He's shaping you. Without him, you wouldn't depend. Right? That's what James has dealt with so far. He's talked about believing truth and doing truth. He's talked about don't show favoritism because the gospel kind of levels the playing ground for everybody. That when we get our eyes on the gospel, that we live differently than the world. It cha- changes the way we talk. Even our tongues are changed. We're gracious forgivers. We're encouraging people. And last week we dealt with this idea of pride. We started to anyway. And then as James asked the question, what causes the fights and quarrels? What's the problem, folks? It's me. It's the flesh. It's pride. Because I think I have my rights. I think I should be defended. I should do it myself. That's what those things come from. James continues the theme of pride when he deals with these, these last few verses in chapter four, verses 13 through 17. He's confronting this idea of pride as it shows up when people, God's people make plans with no regard for him. Okay? Just live in your life, as if you're in charge. Live in your life as if your will is the will to think about. Um, just going through the motions is what James deals with here. Let's let's read them together, and then we'll just kind of pick them apart and, uh, and enjoy the, the, the moment. So James says this in verse 13. Now listen, you who say today or tomorrow we will go to this or that city, spend a year here, carry on business, and make money. Why, you don't even... You don't even know what will happen tomorrow. What is your life? You're a mist that appears for a little while and vanishes. Instead, you ought to say, if it is the Lord's will, we will live and do this or that. As it is, you boast and you brag. All such boasting is evil. Anyone then who knows the good he ought to do and doesn't do it, sins. There's James now bringing up pride as it shows itself in how we, how we plan out our lives. And, and he, he starts out in verse 13, it says, uh, listen, or you who say, which really is literally rendered ones who are saying, or they're on a ongoing, constant, habitual living their life without regards to God whatsoever. And he uses an illustration. And the illustration is a, is a businessman on business. These are guys who have their goals and their projections and their targets. They got it all together. They're going to conquer the world. They're going to make money. Now, stop for a second. It's important for us to know what he's not saying here. He's not. He doesn't have a problem with business. He doesn't have a problem with making money. The scriptures are, are covered with ways to be wise and to steward the moment and, and profit and all those types of things. The, the scriptures aren't against business. What James is confronting is the arrogance of a businessman who goes about his life as if there is no God. Do you understand the difference? He's living his life and making his plans and his objectives and his goals as if he's in charge. Like I don't even have to consider that God would care or be concerned about any details of what I'm doing, where I should go, what I should do, when I should do it and how much I should make. God's not in this, I'm in this. You see the difference? And so uh, James is confronting that arrogance here. He's not saying throw out your calendars or your schedules or your smartphones. Uh, you don't have to do that. He's condemning the making plans without a thought to God. And specifically, I think James is considering men in his church who are going through the motions as business, businessmen who are arrogantly mapping out their lives without, without a concern whatsoever for God. So I think God knew what he was doing when he gave us the book of James because clearly he's peeked into our life in 2011, hasn't he? I mean, could, could there be anything more precise than this, this kind of comment on how we live our life? like we buy houses and cars and make decisions and kids and get married and do all sorts of things without most of the time ever going whoa, whoa, whoa god what do you care at all about this i mean should i do any of this i think god's very specific when he gives us a book like james he knows deep down in us that we care for sometimes a way more about our friends and what they think and the in our business world and what our world thinks than we do what God thinks. He, I think he knows that we care more about what we want than what he wants. I mean, just to, as an illustration, and I don't mean to be too transparent, but we get these response tabs in the bulletin all, uh, from the bulletin all the time. And at the top it says prayer requests, right? And we get lots of them and we pray over them. Every once in a while we get comments. We got one just recently that was dealing with the the amount of time we spend in a service. And, and the comment was, I got better things to do with my time. The, the last service I acted that way too. And I said, just, just wait, your sin hasn't showed up on this one yet. So <laughs> that version, like I, this is, I want what I want. Schedule the world around me. Worship, mm, that's for other people. I've got better things to do with my time. Now, when you say it like that, it sounds gory. It sounds like, oh my gosh, who could say something like that? But we all do. Every time you go about your life without a thought for God, it's the same spirit. Get it? It's the same confrontation. So here is James dealing with this arrogant approach to living our life. Kent Hughes pastor at, uh, was a pastor at College Church in Wheaton said this, so pervasive is our culture's arrogant independence of God that even many Christians attend church, marry, choose their vocations, have children, buy and sell homes, expand their portfolios, and numbly ride the currents of culture without substantial reference to the will of God. More Christians never seriously pray about God's will regarding their vocation, family direction, or entertainments than actually seek God's will. Is that true? I think it is. You know, St. Augustine said this, that, if, that Christians, just kind of he was used to saying this, love God and do whatever you please. In other words, when you love God, your heart's changed, and God will give you his heart, and so what you want to do will be what he wants you to do, so love God and do what you please. We've changed it in our culture to do, do what you please and say, say that you love God. We've switched it. Do whatever you want and just talk like you love Jesus. Do whatever you want and show up at church. Do whatever you want and have Bible studies and carry this around with you. Do whatever you want, because you're in charge. Because that's our culture, folks. That's why James is so good at dealing with who we are in 2011, because this is our issue. And James mentions um, four reasons why it's, why it's foolish to have that approach in life. I I would rather use the word stupid because stupid kind of includes this idea that it's gonna end bad. It's just gonna end really bad. So we're gonna take a look at why James says this, but four reasons why it's stupid to plan our lives without God. The first one he mentions in verse 14. Look at it with me. Again, he goes on, today or tomorrow you say that you're gonna go do business and spend a year there, carry on business and make money. And verse 14, he says, why you don't even know what will happen. You don't even know what will happen tomorrow. It's true, isn't it? And we have no idea what's going to happen this week. You have no idea what's going to happen driving home. You have no idea what I'm going to say in five minutes. You have no, you have no idea. You don't know if you're going to be minding your own business and somebody else is going to be paying attention and you get in an accident and then your life is affected forever. You don't know that. You don't know if you show up at work on on Monday or whatever and your company says, you know what, we're folding up shop, we're done. You don't have a job. That's happened to a lot of folks. I remember back in 1987, I would not finished Bible college. I thought ministry, but I got kind of stuck on starting life. Do you know what I'm saying? I was married a few years and I thought I need to be serious. Some guy offered me a job to manage a hotel. I didn't know anything from hotels or nothing, but it was an opportunity. So I had the world by the tail. I had I had a free free housing and free car and a free salary and all I did was cash checks. It's all I did. And then I lost my job. I was absolutely devastated. Not because I needed that job, but that job was now everything I perceived that I needed, right? It was my future. It was, it was income. It was all the things that made me satisfied and secure. And it it just went away. I remember my wife will tell you this. It was the most devastated I've ever been in my life. Well, God knew what he was doing. He, he basically pulls the trigger on my biggest idol and kills it dead, kills it dead. I had no options. Now I'll tell you this. Now that's 27 years ago. I'll tell you this, that God used that to get me back into ministry but what if that happens? What if you wake up tomorrow and you lose your job? What what if what if like 2008, the, the market takes another 22 percent decline, and you would say, "Well, I've already lost it all anyway. Doesn't really matter." Go ahead and decline. I mean, think about this. I, I don't I don't invest much. I've made one investment in my life. It was a penny investment. I lost everything. So I, I got scared. I'm done. Um, so I'm trusting in eternal investment. That's what I'm trusting. Um, but what if, what if it happens, right? Because this is how the Spirit of God confronts Christians. Because you can be really, really wise and biblical about what you do with your money and everything else. And at the same time, there's this little kernel of idol at the bottom of it. Like, I provide for me. I take care of me. This is my security, right? Right? It's so small, sometimes we don't even know it. We're we're being wise, we're doing smart stuff, we're getting counsel, all that stuff. But down at the bottom, we feel better when it's like this, don't we? And the Bible says that that has no merit whatsoever of how we feel as Christians, because who's our provider? Who's our provider? Yeah, who sustains our life? Who's our security? Okay, so whenever we start getting really sassy about what we have for our security and our provision, you can almost expect God coming for it. Because God doesn't take rivals. He loves us too much. He knows he's the prize of heaven. He knows he's everything that we want. And we get sidetracked. We start looking at stuff that he's made or looking at stuff that's around us. And we go, that'll do it, that'll do it. And he goes, no, it's me. You're going the wrong direction. You're choosing the wrong thing. And so he'll start kind of teaching us slowly. What if that happened? We have no idea what the next 10 minutes will offer. So what's the point? You don't know. So James uses that as as a main thrust reason why it's stupid to go about your life planning without a thought for God because you just don't know. You have no guarantees. I, this was a year and a half ago. I was sitting at McDonald's studying for a messenger and I thought, you know, I don't ever do anything extravagant. I don't. I mean, I'm not, I don't vacation well. Um, but I thought, you know, my wife's a great lady. She's endured so much. I thought, we'll go on a cruise. She would never expect it, really. She would never expect it. So I asked some friends. I called Neil. I said, Neil, her cruise is worth it. Are they cool? And he goes, oh, damn Neil. Love it. The food, the fun, the sun. I mean, he sold it like big time. He's probably getting a cut from somebody. (laughs) And so I just sprung for it, you know, just credit card, get it. She'll be so shocked. And I came home. I said, honey, we're going on a cruise. Where are we going? We're going to the Mexico thing, you know, the three stops. Well, little did I know that it would be the cruise from hell. Um, now, maybe it's because I'm not wired to be trapped on a boat. I don't know. Um, maybe it's because I, people talked the food up so high. I thought it was terrible. Um, maybe it's because one of the crew members committed suicide, jumped overboard, and we spent, you know, a day and a half at sea, and I felt like I was on a prison ship. The whole thing was a lot of money for nothing to me. Now, if you've had a wonderful experience, God bless you. Um, for me, I thought, oh, this wonderful idea just got shot to pieces. You don't have any idea. You have no idea um, what your plans will produce. Let's let's be really honest with each other. You don't know whether your ideas are good or bad, do you? Ever. Like, you could say, I need to worry about retirement. So you put off investing in the kingdom because you're convinced that, you know, you got to take care of things. And so you got a lot of money and then you die and you leave it to people you don't know. That happens. You you could decide that that maybe this boyfriend that you're dating is so important to you that you couldn't afford to lose them so you want to prove your love so you give yourself away and you have no idea of the bitterness, the resentment, the pregnancy, all the garbage that comes from that kind of decision. You uh, love your children, right? They're a gift of God. But you make the choice to uh, make them happy. Like, so you run yourself ragged, making sure they do everything they, they want to do because you want them to be to be happy. Now, and it costs you something, by the way, because they're getting to di- dictate what, what it is that makes them happy. And so you've compromised in a couple things. Like they don't have to be at church very often. You don't put them in the context of other believers. You don't know? get them a place where discipleship happens. You have to, you know, you have to pay for that Somehow. And so there's now this problem or a couple problems that arise. One, it's really obvious. They get the impression that it's all about them, right? So when you indulge them, that's what happens. But secondly, you've put them in a no-win situation because someday they're going to sit in front of a professor and they're going to mess with their minds. And they're not going to be able to stand on their own two feet or peer pressure is going to come and you will have spiritual chaos because you taught them the lesson that God fits into all the many things in their life. He's not the point of life. Get it? Because you had good plans. I mean, there's nothing wrong with making your kid happy. There's nothing wrong with loving your kid and thinking about him. And there's nothing wrong with gifts and doing things like that. So you don't know what your plans will lead to. You want to be married. You know, the Holy Spirit, God gives the desire for stuff like that. And so you want to be married, but you're so convinced you can't wait. So you go ahead and choose to marry an unbeliever, but you don't have any idea what the trouble that will cause. And God's dealt with that too. You think you need a bigger house, so you go and convince yourself you can handle the mortgage payment and the market goes sideways, upside down, backwards, right? And now you can't afford it and la, 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 la. We're we're singing our song, right? Everybody's got a story in here. Here's James' point. Only God knows the future. So if you plan your life without a thought for God then you're acting like an atheist. You're acting like a practical atheist. Foolish is what James says. There's another reason why it's stupid to plan your life without God. James tells us that your life is short. Look at verse 14. He says, you don't know what will happen tomorrow. What is your life? What is it really? You are a mist that appears for a little while then vanishes. How true is that? Somebody once said, your life is like a roll of toilet paper. The, the closer to the end you get, the faster it rolls, right? It, it, it's, it's true, right? When I, when, I was, when I was five years old, an hour was an eternity, right? The worst discipline my dad, he could beat me. to the, I wouldn't care. I'd line up for beatings. But if he told me to sit still, I was dead. I hated it because time stood still. And now decades are going by like hours. You know what I'm saying? How many know that? Life is flying by. It's true. Life is very short. It's a vapor. James, uh, J- Jesus was dealing with the issue of greed in Luke chapter 12. He was he was confronted about a quarrel that people were having, and, and so he brings up a parable to illustrate a point. And you know the parable as the kind of the rich farmer, right? And, and this rich farmer, he planted... And he got a bumper harvest. And so he's thinking to himself. Now stop there. There is no thought of God. He's just thinking to himself. This is where we get in trouble. You know, what am I going to do with all my harvest? What am I going to do? I made it. Well, I know what I'll do. I'll tear down all my barns. And I'll build bigger barns. And I'll store all the stuff I have. And then I'll live forever happy. And I'll eat, drink, and be merry. I'll, I'll be able to relax. And, and what does Jesus say? This is what he says. Listen, you fool. This very night your life will be demanded from you. Then who will get what you have prepared for yourself? This is how it will be with anyone who stores up things for himself but is not rich towards God. You get it? So who's in charge of the bumper harvest? God. But when you take and you're not rich to God, guess what happens? Ooh, He will do whatever it takes to teach you that he's there rich towards god by the way just a side note jesus has a lot of tough things to say about rich people and by the way before you think you're not the rich you are everybody in this room is compared to the world we have we have so much don't we we have we don't have very many needs compared to most most of us sleep in a bed most of us have a shelter most of us know where lunch is coming from in fact which restaurant lunch is coming from right Most of us decide which car to drive to church. You know, are we gonna go home and watch the NCAA tournament, right? Or better yet, the uh, reruns of the national title wrestling tournament. For those of you who are real men. um, (laughs) We got so much. So Jesus confronts the wealthy for one reason, because money screws up your mind. Because it's directly attached to your heart and when it gets in there and it sinks in roots it's a big distraction from him and here's what money does it has a tendency to freak us out when we don't have it and make us act like we're drunk when we do get it like oh my gosh where's my where's my stability coming from where's my strength coming from where's my future coming from i don't have enough and when we have so much we go oh we got all the money right that's why that's why 2008 was such a shock we got it made and all God's got to do is just <laughs> And it's over. It changes everything. So we know that, that life, you don't know. Life is short. And James goes on and says it's frail. Isaiah 40, verse 6. Maybe you've heard this, but listen to what it says. All men are like grass. And all their glory is like the flowers of the field. The grass withers and the flowers fall because the breath of the Lord blows on them. You're so frail. You don't even know. I mean, you could just be snuffed out in a second, right? I borrowed a car to go on vacation a couple of years ago from a friend of mine because I couldn't fit everybody in the family in in my car. So he had like an expedition or whatever. And so we went to vacation, came back, it was Saturday. I thought I'd get it washed up and cleaned up for him. So I'm driving down Val Vista going north. I don't know what happened. I just don't, I don't remember anything. All I know is I was driving and then I hit three cars. All I know, 45 miles an hour, no seatbelt on. I just plowed into the back. And I remember bouncing around inside this cab, and I go, I can't breathe. I mean, I just can't breathe. I, this, this airbag, you know, knocked it out of me. And I got out, and I was sitting on the side, I go, it could have been over. Like, it could have been over. They put me on a stretcher or whatever, and they're going, you know, I don't know what it feels like to die. So I'm going, maybe this is it. It's pretty good. It's not too bad. Um, Cause I wasn't hurting that bad, but they were acting like it mattered. So I didn't know what to, I didn't know what to believe, but it just, it dawned on me then it is so frail. Like without a thought, it can just go away. And James is saying you're living your life. You're making your plans. You're making decisions. You're committing to things. You're teaching lessons to people and your children without a thought for God. And you have no idea it could end now. We have a friend or had a friend. He used to sit right over there every Sunday morning. His name is Chuck Hammond. Spent the afternoon with his kids. He went home, laid down, and never woke up. That's how it goes. And so when James is trying to make his point why you should consider the will of God always as God's people, as, as gospel people, it's because you're not in control of it. It's short and it's failed, right? That's true. It's true. And and then just one last thing, and it seems obvious. George Bernard Shaw said statistics on death are quite impressive, one out of one die. <laughs> so if we're just being pragmatists, we look at that and go, wow, it's, I can't escape it. There isn't any amount of planning that I can do to escape the inevitable, and that is death is certain. So, so let me ask you a question. March 11th, in Japan, how many of those people thought when they woke up, this is it? You know the answer. Nobody. Somebody posted on the, on the internet a, a video or they're calling it the two minutes before video. Somebody had a camera in one of the cities and was just filming, just regular people. So they're flying, by buying bikes, and they're walking, they're talking, they're sipping coffee. And you know what's about to happen, right? The worst earthquake in that place, you know, in modern history anyway. And behind that, a tsunami. And behind that, the nuclear power plant. It, 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 on and on it goes. There was a story written about a man who went through the earthquake and thought he'd run home and get some some of his treasures... Before the tsunami hit, the the wave hit when he was in his house, he climbed out or somehow got out, got on top of his roof. The roof separated from the house and it floated out to sea. He spent two days at sea. Ten miles, they found him off the shore floating in the ocean. You have no idea. Now that, you might say, you're using the most extreme example. If I was preaching in Japan on March 10th, do you think they would have thought it was an extreme example? yeah probably but just look james is making an obvious point you can't you don't know what's going on you have no control you're not that smart you're not that sovereign life is short life is frail and you're going to die merry christmas <laughs> that's the truth some people go through the process in their mind, especially this happens to young people and, and cut me some slack. If you're if you're a twenty something, if you're a high school student, but this goes through your mind, you know it. You hear about the claims of Jesus and you see the example of faith lived out in people and you go, sometimes it's just too restrictive, it seems too serious, it seems too sober, all my buddies, all my friends, they're doing so much. I'm gonna I'm gonna chill. I'm gonna wait a little bit to deal with faith and deal with Jesus until until I can have a little fun. Well, it's got two fundamental flaws in that thinking. The first of all is that you think somehow that Jesus isn't everything. Like he's in your way. He's a, he's a problem. That's a fundamental issue because the scriptures incline that he's your treasure. He's everything you dreamed of. Everything you're chasing for is completely found in Jesus Christ and a personal relationship with him. That's fault, flaw number one. The second one is that you assume that you have plenty of time to change your mind. You're a fool. You're a gambler and you're a gambling fool. You're going to lose it. God's really good about making points like this. We learn them all the time, but we're not permanent lessons because we have to keep learning them. There is no guarantee. So what's the point? James is confronting this issue because he wants to, us to change our mindsets and to change our lives to live as if we're not sovereign, and he is. He's not only in control of our life, but he loves our life, and he's going to do a better job with it than we will, right? Right? That's the truth. So let me give you three simple principles as we're kind of working our way through the obvious confrontation. Here's, here's principle number one. Since we don't know what comes ahead, since we're not sovereign, then we should trust the one who is. Seems like an easy principle, right? We should trust the one who knows the future. He's got all the things mapped out. He knows what he wants to do and how he wants to do it. Right? We, we know the conclusion. He's conforming us to the image of Jesus. He'll use whatever he can to bring it about. So you know where he's going. You just don't know the trail. But since we don't know, we trust the one who does. Here's the principle number two. It's never, ever wrong to pursue the eternal. Jesus said in in Matthew 6, seek first what? The kingdom of God. Okay, I'm going to make it real simple, church. Real, real simple. You never have to wonder what to do first. Jesus wasn't pulling punches. He said, seek first the kingdom. There's one thing to think about before any other thought, the kingdom of God. There is a kingdom perspective with your neighbors. There's a kingdom perspective with your checkbook. There's a kingdom perspective with your friends and your employment and your unemployment. There's a kingdom perspective with everything. Seek first the kingdom of God. And all that stuff you care about, everything you worry about will get sorted out in the kingdom of God. God will conform your heart to the circumstance he puts you in or he'll change your circumstances, amen? That's what he promises. That's principle number two. Principle number three, it's always right to choose to be faithful right now. It's always right. You don't have to wonder, just be faithful because that's the right decision. Your life won't get any better if you choose to be the sovereign one. Okay, let's move on to the positive side of this passage. James deals with the foolishness, the stupidity of living your life as if there is no God. And he starts in verse 15 and gives us the positive side, the, the smart or wise approach to the future. Here's what he says in verse 15. Instead, you ought to say, if, the, if it is the Lord's will, we will live and do this or do that. Or, or as Paul says in, in Romans 12, don't conform to the pattern of this world, but be what? Do you know the word? transformed by the renewing of your mind, then you will be able to test and approve what God's will is, his good, pleasing, and perfect will. Tom talks about this phrase all the time, a, a transformed mind. The only way for you to know what God wants you to do is to have your mind totally given over to the mind of Christ, a transformed mind. That's, that's, what, that's what Paul says here And instead of viewing your your Christian life as one of the commitments you have in your life, just one of the many things you consider, you need to realize that everything we do is about serving Jesus. You understand? Church, do you understand? Everything you do, your employment, your kids, your fun, your vacation, your recreation, your cruises, everything is about serving Jesus. Our plans should be in his plans. Whatever he wants, we should want. And true faith, real legitimate converted faith does this. It realizes the character of God and it trusts in the character of God. God is a loving God, a merciful God, a God who hates sin, a God of wrath who will deal with sin one day, a God who will conform us into his image over time using trials. This God who's revealed himself in the scriptures is the God we put our faith in. Amen? That's what we do. Faith is about trusting God from moment to moment. So if I could give you a predictable week, would you believe? If I could tell you, it's going to be like it was last week. Here's what you're going to do. Monday, you're going to get up. You're not going to want to go to work, but you're going to go to work. right? You're going to have lunch, maybe with that guy that bothers you a little bit, but it's going to be okay because he's going to buy And then you're going to come home and you're going to turn on TV and relax a little bit enjoy a a nice quiet evening and that'll happen on Tuesday and Wednesday and Thursday. We'll be back here next Sunday. If I gave you that, would you believe? Yeah, you'd believe, but but your faith would kind of shrink up. Because in in Christianity, there's no coast. There's no place to land. There's no place to just hover. I'm good, right? You're either growing or you're falling all the time all the time. You're even moving forward into faith, or you're taking control and living like you don't trust in God, and the will of God isn't in your mind. You end up like James says here. That's the reality, people. And so if your week was so predictable, and the outcome would be hmm, average, well, guess what I can promise you's coming this week? A divine interruption. God is so passionate for you people. He is so passionate for you. He wants you to have the blessings of the kingdom. He wants you to know he's real. He wants you to pray in faith. He wants you to see answers to prayer. He wants to see your lost friends and your family come to know Jesus. He wants you to have trust that in spite of circumstances is greater than. He wants that folks and he'll do anything to get it. He's way more committed to it than you are, right? Amen. That's just, that's His promise. So, so what do we do? James suggests a thing. He says in verse 15, instead you ought to say if the Lord wills. Now let me stop for a second and and just in in case we wanna add the mantra of this phrase to our life and think we're doing okay. James is not implying, just say the phrase. Before you do anything, just say if the Lord wills and you're good to go. He's attaching it to a belief. Do Do you understand what I'm saying? When I was a kid, I grew up in a pastor's home. Okay. And when I was a kid, everything was church. I didn't know. I mean, I had no other context. I didn't know it wasn't like that for everybody. Everything was church, church on Wednesday, church Sunday, church Sunday night, people coming over, dad talking church all the time, all the time. I wasn't converted. You know, I was an obedient Christian home kid. That's, that's all I was. But my dad would throw this phrase around a lot, like if the Lord wills, if the Lord wills. Now here's what I didn't know then that I know now. He saw so many dependent moments by prayer that only God could deliver that when he said it, he meant it because it was coming from faith. You know, if God wills. If I push on that door and God's on the other side, guess what's happening to that door? Nothing. You're not moving it. But if that door looks unmovable and God wants it to move, guess what happens? It moves if the Lord wills. See, the phrase isn't like this rabbit's foot, this little little mantra that church people do. It's a legitimate phrase connected to faith that we use before we act. James says, just believe. Believe the gospel and believe God lives and he cares about you. And so when you're planning your life, good, bad, indifferent, all the pieces, the mundane to the, the marvelous, all the things, simply believe God. That's what you do. Just believe. God, is this what you want to do? I know you're alive. I know this piece is directly connected to me and my growth or me and my good or somebody else's good. God, is this what you want? And then shut up long enough to hear him. Sometimes we're in a big hurry. We'll, we'll do that in a second. True faith is realizing the character and trusting in the character of God. Paul says in 1 Corinthians 6, we're not our own. How about that principle? How about take that one, swallow it whole? How about how about you just get this? You don't belong to you. You were bought with a price. That's good news, folks. That's not a burden. So smile. It's good news. You were dead in your transgressions and sins, and unresponsive, but not passively unresponsive. You were aggressive enemies of God and God invaded time and space and your heart to drag you to the kingdom to make you a child of his to inherit the kingdom of God right that's what he did you don't belong to you anymore you were bought with a price the precious blood of Jesus God in the flesh who had no motivation to do it other than love and his glory so if you're tracking with me so far You're asking a question. One of the questions you may be asking is, how do we know what God wants? Because I get frustrated sometimes. I mean, I got all these decisions I got to make. I got life flying by at the speed of light. How do I know? I wish I could just tell. Why didn't God write the book of Tim and put it all in there? Like, okay, on on March 24th, Tim, you're going to need to do this and this and this. He doesn't do that. Well, let me kind of use an analogy, an example And work our way through it for the reason why to that question, why he doesn't. A lot of us are parents or have been parents, right? If you're not, you're going to be, so make mental notes because you're going to come back to this later. Everybody who has a child wants his child to grow up to be a responsible adult, right? Unless you're warped, you want them to grow up to be responsible and mature. If you're a Christian, you want them to love Jesus with all their heart, right? You've already picked out the mission field they're supposed to go to you want your kids to grow up like that. So if that's your objective, let me ask you parents, do you tell your kids everything they should do? <laughs> you act like it's a trick question. <laughs> I won't scold you if you're wrong. Do you tell them everything? Oh, no, you don't. You don't tell them everything for a couple, for a couple of reasons because they'll rebel against it for sure and you'll handicap them they won't be able to think for themselves. They won't make any choice and any choice they would make will just be conformity to you, which will send them straight to hell, not to Jesus, right? So what we do as parents is we teach, constantly teach principles and truth. Watch, and this is, the, this is the weird part. We teach it by our lives, good and bad examples. I've said this before, but the easiest thing to pass on to your children is your sin. You can do that with your eyes closed. You don't even have to try. You don't have to open your mouth. Every one of you have given some of those sinful tendencies and traits, your inclinations and bents to your kids. They look like you. The hardest Holy Spirit possible part of being a parent is to somehow give them a divine perspective. And so what you do is you teach through your failures and your wins. You, You go and say, I screwed up. I sinned against you and against God. Will you forgive me? You might have to do that 10 times a day, but that's the only mechanism the gospel gives us to deal with that. And that will teach them more about what you believe than anything else. You know that phrase, I used to get it a lot when I was a kid, do it because I said so. Don't say that anymore. Stop it. Because it traps a kid. That's not why they should do it. Who are you? Other than, I know you're the divine authority channel. Got it. But even that isn't good enough. Watch. When God gives us children, we're trying to transfer authority to God as soon as we can. So when they're born, they think we're God. I mean, look how big you are. You feed me. You take care of me. You change me. You do everything. You, you are my provision. I got it. But as soon as the compass comes on, as soon as the lights come on, you tell them, it isn't me. The author of life is, is Jesus. And you don't have to do this because I said so. You do it because he said so. Now, he's holding me accountable to discipline you and train you for the purpose of godliness and I I can't quit because if I quit to make it better for you, I'd sin against him. So you have to deal with me struggling through this too and I'm a sinner raised in a sinner so you need to believe this because God said so. And by the way, let me teach you some things about decision making. Let me teach you some things about working through life and processing and being able to think I have an expectation. When... when uh, When my wife decided we were going to have kids, because I never really thought about it much, Um, and I don't know if I'm like every other guy, but for some reason it just didn't dawn on me. I thought it was inevitable, but I never planned for it. I didn't strategize for how to be a dad. But as soon as I had my first kid, I was very serious about what it was to raise him. I wanted to do it right, so I thought, well, teach him teach them to respect authority and, and teach them to, to, to not spend money they don't have or, or teach them to, to think before you speak. And, you know, uh, even, a, even a fool is considered wise when he keeps his mouth shut and, and, and treat every girl like a sister and protect them and, and love your mom and, and, and work harder than everybody else. And every time I had an opportunity, I would do the Proverbs teaching, you know, like the wisdom writer. He would just walk through life and go, there's a lesson, there's a lesson, there's a lesson. There's I never, I never did family devotions. I never felt like I would, because I, I went through it and that wasn't helpful to me. But I decided that I would make everything a God story. Here's why we don't do that. Look at that dude. Just like the Proverbs writer. That's a fool. Here's why he's a fool. That's a bad decision. Here's why it's a bad decision. Look at the consequences to behavior there. Here's what you don't want to do. And it was constant all the time. So... As Back to the illustration, if that's how we would treat our kids, God is just like that and more. God cares deeply about us, thinking his thoughts and feeling his feelings, not just giving us a list of do's and don'ts. He could have, right? Now, there, there are some explicit commands in here, but you're going to have questions and decisions about life that aren't addressed in this, right? So what do you do? What do you access to make decisions? And basically what Jesus has taught us and what James now is referring to is this idea of when you love him, when your heart is given over to him, you're gonna want what he wants. Some of the specific things we'll get to in a little bit about practical, but the attitude of the heart to desire what he desires, to think what he thinks, to grow up and mature in your faith is God's intentions. He doesn't tell you, all right, move left, move right. There's wiggle room. And when you fail, guess what you do? Do you know? Call it what he calls it. Call it sin. Leave it behind and start brand new. Every time, 10 times a day. How many times you got to do it? That's God's mechanism for sin and failure. But he wants us to think his thoughts and and have his heart. He sets out to teach us like his kids. So how do you know what to do? Can I give you just three? specific ways, if you're kind of thinking, well, I want to be able to answer the question, I thought about the will of God before my own. So how do you know what the will of God is? Three things. We learn by examples, we learn by commands, and we learn by principles. First of all, examples. You can go through this all over and you see great examples of good and bad decision makers, right? I think some of the most powerful lessons in scripture aren't the champion ones. I mean, I love Caleb and Joshua. I love stories like that. You know, I want to be that guy but I think I learned more from Pharaoh than that. You want to fight with God? I promise you, this story tells you what's going to happen. You're going to lose. Right? So we learn learn from the scriptures examples of what it is to, to submit to the will of God, but we have explicit commands. I mean, we have all over do's and don'ts, imperatives for people. So it's not confusing. Just do those things. And then we have these principle parts. And this is the fuzzy stuff for Christians. Principles. We always think we're the exception to the rule. We think we're either stronger or smarter, our circumstances are different than all other people. So we change how we behave. So let me let me prove my point. The Bible doesn't tell us specifically who to marry, does it? It doesn't say, Tim, in 1982 you're going to ask this girl named Suzanne to marry you. Thus says the Lord. It doesn't say that, but it does say this: don't be unequally yoked. So. I know that the person I'm going to marry, if I'm follower of Christ, is a person who loves Jesus more than she loves me. I know that because there's a principle. The scripture doesn't tell us what activities to be involved with, but it does tell us that anything that takes away from him is an idol and it's got to go, right? The scripture doesn't tell us what car to buy, but it does tell us not to covet our neighbor's car. Right? There's all sorts of principles that go into how we make decisions we need to stop looking at the commands of Scripture like this grocery store. You know, Tom's been talking about his grocery store discovery like he's never been in a store before. And so just imagine Tom wheeling through the spiritual grocery store. Uh, no, not that. I'll leave that one. And, you know, you leave all the things that are in, in your way, all the things that make it complicated, all the things that would cramp your style a little bit. You leave them on the shelf and you start loading up all the want-to's. Well, that's not how this goes, folks. You know that, right? We're submissive, follower, dependent, children moment by moment of a sovereign loving God who knows way better about this stuff than we do, right? Amen? Amen. Amen. Remember what God promised. So if you're a little confused, remember what God promised in the beginning of James. He said, listen, if any of you lacks wisdom, what are you supposed to do? Ask. Ask. And God gives generously. He's got buckets of wisdom. Ask Solomon, before he became king, he was given uh, a request by God. And of all the things he could ask for, he asked for wisdom. And God said, you want that? I'll give you that. Made him the wisest man who ever lived. How many of you asked for wisdom this week? Maybe some of us did. Ask God if there's a struggle, he will give it. And back to my point about shutting up and listening. When God seems silent in the process of you saying, God, whatever I want to do? Don't just assume that you plow ahead. Maybe you ought to sit still for a little bit, listen for a little bit, include counsel a little bit. So here's James' point from the beginning to the end. That we can't live in God's will if we give no consideration to God whatsoever. And he comes back to a negative thing in verse 16. Look at it and we'll just touch on it. See, as it is, I've given you all this instruction. You're going about planning your life without a consideration of God. What you should say is if the Lord wills, but as it is, you boast and brag and all such boasting is evil. See, boasting and bragging are for the arrogant and and for the stubborn. And there are two examples that popped in my mind when I read this. First of all, the example of Nebuchadnezzar. We know that story, right? Hopefully we do. I'll, I'll tell you the short version, king of Babylon. Here was this guy. Who walked out one day and he used three words to describe himself, power, honor, and glory. Who does it sound like he's describing? Oops, big problem. So a dream was given, an interpretation was added to Nebuchadnezzar. Listen, because of that kind of arrogant heart, you're going to have to live like an animal for seven years. So he makes that statement while the words were still on his lips, he's acting like an animal. He's insane. He's eating grass. His fingernails are growing like eagle's claws. His hair is growing like bird feathers. He's out. This Nebuchadnezzar, this great king, is acting like an animal until God allowed him to come to his senses and he recognized that what he said wasn't true and that there's only one God and it isn't him. And then God restored his senses, right? So it's, it's arrogant, it's arrogant to, to have those feelings. Now, unless you think that maybe that's too extreme of an example to describe how you and I behave when we don't consider the will of God, just think about it. Not considering God in the decisions you make and the life that you live is equal to pretending you are God because you are now sovereign over all decisions and you're sovereign over all things in your life, right? And just so you know, news flash, news flash you're not God, And God won't be mocked. So if you don't include this whole perspective, this dependent perspective that I don't know what next minute's gonna look like, God, I gotta know. I wanna live in your will. I wanna know your heart. Then you're sort of living like like that atheist. The other example, the stubborn heart example is the example of Jonah. We know this story too, right? God just makes a very simple request. Jonah, go tell the people to repent. Go over to Nineveh, tell them to repent. Jonah didn't wanna tell them to repent because he didn't like Nineveh. So he didn't like God's plan. We know the story, right? He ran. God used a great fish to haul him back to Nineveh to tell people to repent. Reluctantly, he told him to repent and then he got mad when they did. Sound like us? At all? Are you kidding me? God's being explicit? Go and do. Eh, I'm not certain I like that idea. I don't like those people. Just Just go and restore that relationship with those. Uh, they're a jerk, God. Did you know that? They're an absolute jerk. They don't deserve my forgiveness. See, it's a stubborn heart. And and again, just to make it really, really blunt, you can't win a fight with God. He'll get his way. So when, when James says, as it is, you boast and brag, when you live your life without considering the will of God in your life and the decisions you make, it's an arrogant, boastful, stubborn heart. And you can't win. If it produced, I suppose I'd understand, but it doesn't ever work. Let me finish with verse 17. I call it the no excuse rule. So if you like rules, if you lean towards the religious type, then this is a rule, okay? Verse 17. Anyone then who knows the good he ought to do and doesn't do it, sins. Now we all know the sins of, of, of commission, right? These are the sins God says, don't do that and we do it. Well, we've, did, we've committed those sins. But when God says, when God says things for us, um, to do, and we just kind of blow it off. Those are the sins we omit, right? We just kind of, we're not active. I'm telling you, church, right up front, the entire journey in James has been a, come on, come on and believe. Have faith, let your faith be lived out. Let it be real, let it be seen. Come on, church, come on. So here's one of, uh, good news and bad news. You know enough to Change. But if you don't, you know enough to be condemned. There's some judgment on the back end of this thing. Folks, listen, if you're a believer and you've heard all these things and you know that you're supposed to submit yourself to God and that God opposes the proud and gives grace to the humble, that you're supposed to be careful with your tongue, you're supposed to have joy in trials if you're supposed to do all these things and you go, you know what? No, I'm choosing not to. Then James is saying, like he's been saying through this whole book, you're sinning. There's some judgment on your soul for that. So to sit here every week and go through this study and not and just sit there and marvel at oh it's so practical it's so practical but have no desire to do anything about it well then there's going to be a charge that's what James is saying so let's finish with this what is God saying to you I, I don't I don't know how to pray so specifically for everybody I, I don't even I mean there's people in the conference center right now and I don't even see their faces. I see your faces, but in a generic way. All I care—all I care about—is so, this point, this big point, lands somewhere. Like it lands on some soft heart, and you kind of go, "Ugh, ugh." So let's answer the question. Let's answer this question: What is God specifically saying to you? Can Can I give you some things to think about? Are, are you one of those practical atheists who loves church, going to church, studying church stuff, reading stuff, going through the Bible, but the practical side of obedience is kind of just a little bit crampy? I mean, to do what you say you believe is not that convenient. Well, let me give you some categories to think through. Maybe, maybe you're living as a practical atheist as a parent because you've decided that you're going to let the responsibility of 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 raising your child in the love of the Lord. Maybe you're living as a practical atheist as a husband or a wife because you you don't really buy into the fact that you're supposed to serve your wife and lovers as Christ loved the church or your wife who doesn't believe in that submissive piece. I don't like that either. So you're choosing to kind of ne- neglect that part. That's practical atheism. You know what the Bible says. Maybe, maybe you're a practical atheist in your tithing because you decide that the economy is so upside down and so like tenuous that if you don't manage your, your portfolio and you don't hold on to your savings and you don't cut back in your tithe, you'll never survive, which says a lot of things, folks. It says, I'm the provider, I'm the sustainer, I got to take care of me, doesn't it? I mean let's cut let's cut it down to the core. That's all it can mean. If God said if God sent you a letter, personal letter with your name on it said, trust me, Tim, I'm gonna I'm gonna make sure that you have food, shelter, and clothing. I love you. Sign God. No problems. And then maybe I can open up my hands a little bit. Maybe I could go, oh, okay, God, well this is all yours anyway. But but Practical atheists kind of do this with money and things. They just kind of hoard because they're convinced that they're in charge of their security. We've learned anything we've learned from 2008. You can't even do that, right? Right? Maybe you're living as a practical atheist when it comes to being a citizen in 2011 because you don't like this president and you don't like this economy and you don't like what's going on and you don't like the Libya thing and so you're just a complaining, oh, everything's going to fail, right? Chicken little. God's people go, he's in charge. I don't see it. I don't know all the pieces. I might make some different decisions, but I have no doubt who's got it. Rest. You can just totally rest. So again, a series of questions and we're done. Are you going through life without any thoughts of God? Are, are you, would your name be who James is writing to? Because you just planning and doing and doing and going and going and God's an afterthought. Are you so into planning your future that you have no time to serve and love? That's a problem. Have you put off being serious about the kingdom issues, the eternal issues until someday in the future? Then if, if the Holy Spirit has convicted you, then here's all you need to do. Confess it, call it what God calls it. Just agree with God about what he already knows. It's sin. Then leverage repentance. It's the kindness of the Lord that leads you to repentance. Then just turn from it. I don't want it, God. I see it as sin. I'm leaving it behind. Seek his will. Get to know this book. Seek his will. There are examples to follow, principles to follow, and commands to follow, right? So seek to know his will. And then just ask this question all the time. Ask this question all the time. God, what do you want me to do? And then pace it down enough to hear him. Make sense? That's pretty good. God, it's, it's almost as if you were looking at our church in Gilbert when this book was written because um, our tendencies are very similar to go about our life, our planning, our security, our, our purpose without much thought of you. God, we can say what is deep in our hearts that we love you. And if we say that, it's, it's obviously Holy Spirit authored. And we do, but God, sometimes we get really confused and we get a little concerned and worried and scared and start doing things that don't line up with faith. God, I pray for us at Redemption. I pray for me, I pray for these folks. God, help us to live what we say we believe. Help us to live in your will, to know your will, and to love your will. Through Jesus we can. We pray this in Christ's name, amen.